0: Of man history who gets to decide what's most important and how it is written about perhaps there's evidence that there's a special role for narrative storytelling as opposed to really dry history. How much more engaging and important history is there yet to be mined? When I was growing up in the mid-20th century, history was delivered to us as the heroic stories of powerful white men. Their work led America on an irreversible path, a straight line of progress. As the song says, it ain't necessarily so. Could it be that the most important lessons of history are those least well-known? Well, today on Keeping Democracy Alive, we'll discuss a valuable story of which I had never heard, though I am kind of an enthusiast of hidden history. President Woodrow Wilson called our main character, Rose Pastor Stokes, one of the most dangerous influences of the country. Yet, I never heard of her. The book is titled Rebel Cinderella, From Rags to Riches to Radical, The Epic Journey of Rose Pastor Stokes, and its author is Adam Hoeksteel. Thanks so much for being with us.
2: Good to be with you, Bert.
0: When the country itself was on a dangerous new course, Rose Pastor Stokes mounted a challenge that perhaps should be considered noble. The Cinderella story was real life and did not have a fairy tale ending. Adam Hochschild is the author of 10 books, King Leopold's Ghost, a Story of Greed, Terror, and Heroism in Colonial Africa, an amazing story I knew nothing about but paints in full, full color the realities of Western attitudes and actions toward this huge continent. Another is Bury the Chains, Prophets and Rebels in the Fight to Free an Empire Slaves, the British British Empire. More recently is To End All Wars, a Story of Loyalty and Rebellion, 1914 to 1918, which looks at the era of the First World War in terms of the struggle between those who felt the war was a noble crusade and those who felt it was not worth the sacrifice of all those millions of lives. And his 2016 Spain in Our Hearts, Americans in the Spanish Civil War, 1936-39, follows a dozen characters through that conflict, among them volunteer soldiers and medical workers, many of whom I actually had the tremendous honor to befriend and journalists who covered the war, and a little-known American oil man who sold Francisco Franco most of the fuel for his military. Well, the new book is, again, Rebel Cinderella, From Rags to Riches to Radical, The Epic Journey of Rose Pastor uh, Stokes, another puzzle in the mystery of history that has been conveniently left out. The central figure Rose Pastor Stokes doesn't quite fit but a hundred years ago she dominated national headlines and will share uh, with the listener what she fought for the story of her amazing rise and fall and the remarkable and frightening relevance to today and as with virtually all history I've read you can't tie it up easily with a bow there's no clear undisputed resolution to the issues at cause Well again Adam thanks so much for being with us barrels of ink were used in countless newspaper articles and drawings of her in America in the 19-teens. Why had I never heard of her, and how did you come to write this book? Uh,
2: Well, you know, it's always interesting to me who we remember and celebrate when we talk about this country's history and who we forget. And it's also interesting to me to see the enormous disparities between people who are in the news all the time when they're alive, and then 50, 100 years later, we've completely forgotten they're there. Uh And uh, this was a remarkable woman who was part of what was really, I think, the most unusual marriage in early 20th century America. She was uh, a Jewish immigrant from Russia, extremely poor, had less than two years of formal schooling, uh, at the age of 11, she went to work for a dozen years as a cigar worker, Yes, uh, working in cigar factories, Cleveland, Ohio. At the end of that time, she was supporting herself, uh, her mother, and six younger siblings who had been abandoned by an ne'er-do-well stepfather. Uh, then in 1905, she married a guy who was WASP, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, and from one of the wealthiest families in the United States. So you can imagine how that put their marriage on the headlines. This was a marriage that was literally on the front page of the the New York Times. Uh, Her husband's name was James Graham Phelps Stokes, Graham to his friends, and The New York Times headline was, J.G. Phelps stokes to wed young Jewess. Uh, The the, uh, disparity between Gentile and Jew was as much news as was, you know, someone extremely rich from one of the wealthiest families in the country marrying someone extremely poor. And they lived in the most unimaginable blaze of publicity for the next 20 years.
0: Absolutely amazing. You talk about dirt poor. She, back in Russia... Uh, or I guess maybe it's part of Poland now, I'm not sure, that was dirt poor. and Right.
2: Uh, I mean, she had grown up, uh, you know, well, she's not grown up, but grown up to the age of three, uh, living in, as you say, a, a city that was then in Imperial Russia. Today it's in the northeast corner of Poland. There, there was no Poland, right. of course, before the First World War. And then, like... Uh, Uh, millions of other Russian Jews, she fled the Russian Empire when, uh, after the assassination of the Tsar in 1881, there were a series of pogroms over the next uh, 25 years, and that forced millions of people to flee, most of whom ended up in the United States, but often with no money in their pocket at all. That was the case for her and, and her mother when they came here.
0: And then working in the cigar factory, that was that was not exactly a picnic, shall we say? And that's it's really well described in there, and it's it's almost hard to imagine how bad it was. But it gave her uh, quite a place from which to take off. And before she became part of the incredibly wealthy and powerful Phelps Dodge Stokes clan, she was like a speck of dust, as has been said, in a huge influx of Eastern European immigrants who made up. Probably the majority of New Yorkers in New York City, Donald Trump, would have hated. And in 1902, Woodrow Wilson, then a young Princeton professor, published a book in which he described Eastern Europeans as lesser people, far down the ladder from descendants of Anglo-Saxons, in a way not dissimilar to how our current president feels about brown-skinned immigrants. As Of Rose, you write that it is hardly surprising that she thought Christians dangerous. Say more about that, please.
2: Yeah. Well, I think you're absolutely right, Bert, that a lot of the venom today that is directed by uh, people like Donald Trump at Mexicans and immigrants from Central America and so forth, at that time was directed at immigrants from outside of places like England, Germany, France, anywhere southern eastern Europe, uh Jews, Poles, other Slavs, Greeks, Arabs, uh these were the people who in the eyes of eugenics uh fanatics and other people who who you know thought in racial terms in those days were these are the people who were polluting the American gene pool. Mm. And this was a tide to be turned back. I mean the irony, of Sounds course, so is that yeah. uh, uh, look at the way the intellectual luster of 20th century America was added to by those Jewish immigrants from from uh, uh, Eastern Europe and Russia. They were poor when they arrived here, but you know many of them, they and their descendants had startling achievements, as as well as people who came from these other places as well. But there has always been an undercurrent. Of nativism in this in this country, an undercurrent that's you know boiling along under the surface in American life, and we see some of it uh, coming up to the surface in the person of President Trump today. And there was a lot of it coming up to the surface, you know, around eighteen ninety, nineteen hundred, 1900, nineteen ten, in the form of diatribes hmm. against immigration by people who considered themselves of old stock. That mm-hmm. is, of British, German, French descent who didn't want any of these unwashed newcomers uh, bringing down standards in the United
0: States. Boy, that sounds familiar. It's, it's its amazing that it's gone on this long, but I suppose some people like to have, I don't know, some bad guy, something to blame everything on. We've seen that happen, oh, a number of times in history. she She met her future husband, who was then volunteering at a settlement house in New York City? It seems like an incredibly unlikely pairing. What was a settlement house? Uh, who was he? What, and talk about the role of noblesse oblige, philanthropy, then and now.
1: And
2: right. go ahead. Well, Rose, as I mentioned, uh, spent a dozen years as a cigar worker, Uh, and then I should just tell you how she came to be in New York. She she was uh, working in cigar factories in Cleveland, Ohio, but on the side, she had started writing little articles, anecdotes, sentimental poetry for a Yiddish newspaper published in New York, but that was trying to go national. She wrote happily for me because I don't speak Yiddish. She wrote for the English page of this uh-huh. newspaper, and she was prolific enough that the newspaper finally invited her to come to New York and be a reporter for it there. So she arrived in New York uh, at uh, for the first time in the uh, in January of 1903. Went to work as a reporter for the paper, and six months later. She was sent to interview somebody who worked in a settlement house on the Lower East Side. The Lower East Side, of course, was the heart of Jewish New York with hundreds of thousands of recent immigrants, uh, almost all from Eastern Europe and Russia, uh, living packed into dilapidated tenements, living in, in, in often horrible conditions, great poverty. These settlement houses were institutions that existed um, throughout the Northeast and the Midwest. The first one was famously started by Jane Addams in Chicago. Uh And these were places where uh, there were things like uh, uh, literacy classes for adults, uh, uh, feeding programs for children, sports teams for children, Uh, classes in music and art and other things that would enrich the school uh, curriculum. These were kind of charitable good works places that were largely staffed by well-to-do college graduates, much the way today that somebody, you know, a good-hearted person wanting to uplift the world might graduate from college and join the Peace Corps. Mm. Uh, And at that time, it was felt that you know, among the sort of more um, do good, generous minded people of the middle and upper classes, that it was felt that, well, you know, this country is flooded with all these immigrants. If they're going to be proper Americans, somebody should be out there, you know, teaching them the English language and teaching them good hygiene and so forth. So these settlement houses were places where, as I say, these, these middle and upper class college graduates came to work and often to live. And uh, so when Rose was sent to a settlement house on the Lower East Side to do her interview, the guy that she interviewed, James Graham Phelps Stokes uh, Graham, uh, was actually living there and working there as well. And the two of them fell in love, and uh, they courted secretly for two years. And after two mm. years, uh, overcoming the uh, quiet but intense opposition of his family, uh, they got yes. married. Yes, and that was the point where their romance suddenly was on the front pages.
0: For those of you who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive, and we're talking with. Uh, acclaimed author Adam Hochschild about his new book, Rebel Cinderella, From Rags to Riches to Radical, The Epic Journey of Rose Pastor Stokes. And I wonder about this sense of uh, noblesse oblige. And, and, and I think in Graham, perhaps, I'm not sure, she saw someone who was interested not just in reducing a sense of rich people's guilt, but perhaps actually making change. Your thoughts?
2: Well, I think that's true. I mean, he came from a family that had uh, a philanthropic tradition. Uh, there was a Phelps Stokes Fund, uh, which I believe is still in existence, which has uh, put a lot of money into African-American education. Graham Stokes himself was on the board of Booker T. Washington's Tuskegee Institution, and um, Other members of the family had been missionaries. Uh, Graham originally wanted to train to be a medical missionary. He'd actually gone to medical school. So there were these missionary uh, do-gooder impulses in the family. And I think it was that that led him to go to work in a settlement house on the Lower East Side and to do something which none of his siblings or relatives did, which was to make this remarkable leap and marry not just out of his class, but out of his religion to marry a Jewish woman and to marry a factory worker and it was a a bold leap that he made uh, and this is what, as I say, landed them on the front pages and began this extraordinary relationship, which is what i what I trace in the book
0: what one thing the book does that radio can't is have pictures. Uh, there is a photo of the Phelps Summer Cottage in Western Mass. I, I wonder if you could describe that a bit and talk about how she and her friends on the left dealt with that seeming contradiction. Maybe you can describe that place. It's it's amazing.
2: Well, it was a remarkable building. It was, when it was built in the 1890s, it was for a time the largest private home in the United States, in the, the, the Berkshires, Western Massachusetts, Stockbridge, Massachusetts, had 100 rooms. And legend has it that one of Graham's brothers, who was in the class of 1896 at Yale, sent his mother a telegram saying, Bringing some apostrophe 96 fellows home for the weekend. And the apostrophe got dropped from the telegram, and the mother wired back, saying, many guests already here have room for only 50. She thought he was bringing 96 home, friends home for the weekend. So here was this enormous place. Uh, and, uh, as I say, largest private home in the United States. You see photographs of it. It looks like a kind of grand hotel. Yeah, it's impressive. Uh, three stories, several several wings. And it was not the only uh, home the family had. They, they had That's a fair. mansion in New York on Madison Avenue that today is part of the Morgan Library. They lived right next door to J.P. Morgan. Um, they had a so-called camp in the Adirondack Mountains, upstate New York, uh, when Graham was growing up, they had a weekend house on Staten Island, where, which was apparently a place where many uh, wealthy New Yorkers had weekend homes. Uh, so he grew up in enormous comfort. Yes. Um, and then when he and Rose married, it was um, a considerable adjustment for her to live at least partly in that world. She was not completely comfortable in it, but Mm -hmm. she navigated it very well, actually got on with his family, became close friends with with one of his sisters, Uh, was kind of aghast at the attitudes of some of the others. Mm. But she navigated extremely skillfully between the different worlds that uh, she lived in. Uh, the world of intense poverty in which she'd grown up, often not having enough to eat. In fact, I I found a letter from her sent to a friend a year or so after she married, and she said, you just don't know what a difference it makes in my life to have a full stomach all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, At the same time, together, they entered a new world because they married in 1905. Then in 1906, they both joined the Socialist Party which they saw as the solution to the um you know ills of poverty terrible working conditions and so on which they were so acutely aware of and that put them in the middle of really the most extraordinary group of people all of the most interesting folks in the United States at that time uh Emma Goldman, Lincoln Steffens, John Reed, Big Bill Haywood, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, Upton Sinclair, Mother Jones, uh, all of these people were their friends, often their house guests. You could not have spent a more interesting weekend than being at their, their home one weekend with some of these folks there.
0: Absolutely uh, incredible, these salons, these, uh, uh, you know, I get the sense that in the early part of the last century, there was a real optimism on the left. The fact that, you know, somebody like Graham would join the socialists, you know, it's, it's the word was, I don't know, I mean, I guess it was open to interpretation back then. And, of course, one of the publications at the time which was eventually crushed, which you do talk about and is a major focus, was Max Eastman's uh, magazine called The Masses. That magazine and the Greenwich Village Salons mixing intellectuals and artists with real working-class people like the IWW's uh, Big Bill Haywood, this idealism and optimism... What did they see as the dawn of a new age of creativity? What, what vision did they preview, now held by some of today's cultural and political left? What was that vision?
2: Well, you're right. It was a time of wonderful optimism. And I think uh, partly because two things had not yet happened. The really big thing that had not yet happened was the First World War. And, of course, yeah. the outbreak of that war in 1914 completely destroyed the hope that everyone had that the working classes of different countries of the world would feel ever more solidarity with each other and would, of course, oh, never know. go to war. If they went right. to war against anybody, it would be against the capitalists. Well, d-
1: yes, <laughs>
2: August 1914 crushed that dream for good, but it was a dream that you know, people believed in so earnestly and so good heartedly before then. Then, of course, the, the other thing that, um, you know, kind of brought our curtain down on that era of hope, I think, was how the Russian Revolution turned out, uh. where, you know, it was um, uh, so easy to be a socialist before, 1917, because you can say socialism will cure everything. Right. You know, the industry will be owned by the people, and the land will be owned by the people. It was often a little fuzzy just how that was going to work, but somehow you could read into this dreamed-of future whatever you you, right. you wanted to see there. And then, of course, when a revolution did come in, in Russia— uh, most people assumed that uh, paradise had arrived there, and it took a while for it yeah. to sink in that uh, you That's know right. this was not the case. Yeah. Uh, but the period before all this happened, uh, you know, 1900 to 1914, I think, was a wonderful and hopeful time, yeah. and it was also a time when you know labor leaders like Big Bill Haywood and uh, Eugene Debs and so on. Really mixed with some of the great intellectuals of the day, and there was a kind of an exchange of ideas and a sense that we 're all in this together that I find uh, quite beautiful
0: yeah, it was nice and uh, well an- another book you wrote of course was to all end all to end all Wars about that first will of war, the effects of which i don't think have ever ended when that's right when wilson was running for re-election in 1916 of course his slogan was he kept us out of war well then everything changed the flames of war fever were fanned by the government and business the war saw young working men killing other young working men at an industrial mechanized rate it was and, and they didn't stick together as working men of all different nations because of the rise of nationalism. And one could argue that it did a lot more harm than good. Rose and many others tried to remain committed to international working-class solidarity. Why should workers from one country kill their fellow workers, she questioned. From the standpoint of a 100 years, was nationalism intentionally used to divide and conquer this budding internationalist movement?
2: Oh, I think it definitely was. It definitely was, and it continues to be used that way. Um, You know, I think any demagogue who tries to whip up ethnic hatred of any kind, whether it's uh, Trump railing against Mexicans or Orban in Hungary railing against immigrants or Modi in India railing against Muslims, they're always trying to make somebody the scapegoat for the injustices and discontents of that society. And you can see this really explicitly around the the time of the First World War, and I quoted some of this stuff in my book about that war, To End All Wars, where, you know, there are uh, wealthy people in England writing to each other uh, during 1913 and early 1914, which were a time of tremendous strikes and great uh, demands by labor, these wealthy folks writing to each other saying uh, a war right now would be a good thing for all these workers who are so eager to strike. And that indeed is what happened. You know, the country went to war, Uh, the worker militancy evaporated, everybody pitched in, we all have to be patriots now. And, uh, you know, somebody said patriotism was the, the last refuge of a scoundrel. And, it's also the last refuge of anybody wanting to take people's minds off uh-huh. injustices.
0: Yeah, I understand uh in uh, formerly great britain it, it came as at a convenient time because they were worried about the irish troubles and then ah they sure. got the irish people to fight against uh the hun over there across the, uh, the you know the english channel. But uh it it seems that uh, That the availability of information now, well, let's back up a little bit. Let's talk about the Espionage Act, which kind of leads into a lot of things. Wilson, (laughs) great liberal, in uh, quotes there, uh, he passed the Espionage Act, of course. It sounded reasonable enough. You don't want spies over here. You got to protect our young men over there. What were its actual purposes? And tell us about the special treatment for women who questioned the war policy.
2: Well, the Espionage Act was passed by Congress in the spring of 1917, a month or two after the U.S. had joined the First World War. And ostensibly, of course, from the title of the act, it was directed against German spies In fact, there were almost no German spies active in the United States at that time. They had been mostly rounded up. Germany had indeed had some spies in the U.S., but they'd been mostly rounded up uh, a year or two earlier when their spymaster was riding a New York elevated railway train, fell asleep on the train, and got off the train leaving his briefcase behind, which was immediately scooped up by uh, an American agent who was tailing him. So the German spies had mostly been arrested by that point. But the Espionage Act was basically directed against dissenters against the war. It was the first law against uh, seditious speech that had been passed since the very short-lived law that was passed in 1798, more than 100 years before. And... uh, There were some 2,000 people who were convicted under the Espionage Act. Almost all of them sent to prison. Only 10 of them were actually charged with being German spies. So this was a way way to shut up uh, critics of the war effort, of whom there were quite a few. And Rose Pastor Stokes was a very prominent one.
0: Yeah, there were quite a few people against the war. I mean, Wilson, before 1916, kind of hung out with a lot of uh, anti-war people. But what about, there was special treatment for women who questioned the war. Something very cultural about that.
2: Yes, because women were thought of, first of all, you know, by... Most people, or most men in this country, anyway, almost all men, they were thought of as people who were not political actors. They were supposed to have the same opinions their husband had, and their job was to, uh, you know, produce babies. Especially if they were women, you know, of proper stock, that is, Anglo-Saxon uh... to have lots of children who could then populate the male children could populate the armies and the women uh... children could produce more babies that was their role so the government got particularly upset when there was an outspoken woman and actually a lot of the most vocal uh... opponents of the first world war and those whose trials got the most public attention uh, were women. Rose Pastor Stokes, uh, Kate Richards O'Hare, Emma Goldman, Marie Equi. It's a, quite a fascinating group of people who seem to draw uh, ire of prosecutors, particularly because there were women speaking yes.
0: out. How dare they? Don't they know their place? Uh, it was a different culture back then. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are on Keeping Democracy Alive, and we're talking with uh, Adam Hochschild about his new book, Rebel Cinderella, From Rags to Riches to Radical, The Epic Journey of Rose Pastor Stokes. And uh, there is, you know, the the cultural aspect of it is significant as well. One can see sort of the prehistory of the Me Too movement in Rose's life and work. I want to talk about that, if you would, please, her relationship with Sarah Coton birth control, and perhaps the tenuous strength of the culture of white male dominance and control.
2: Yeah. This was a fascinating aspect of her life, which certainly has relevance today. Um, soon after she married, and we should go back to their life story for a second, they married in 1905, 1906, they both joined the, the Socialist Party. Uh, around nineteen nine there began in this country a huge wave of strikes, which continued almost unabated for the next decade or so. Hundreds of thousands of workers uh, going out on strike each year. And when this happened, it was Rose that workers wanted to have come and talk to them and speak at their rallies because she had been working class herself, knew the kinds of conditions that people worked in, and she was a spectacular public speaker from all reports, uh, uh, very yes. much in demand. One of the strikes she got involved in was that of garment workers in New York City. Uh, actually, several strikes. Uh, the first first started in 1909. There was another one a couple of years later. And one of the problems that garment workers had was uh, being molested by male superiors. Any woman doing piecework, you know, where you're paid, you know, mm-hmm. for the item that you produce, are sort of particularly vulnerable Because, you know, if you were under the thumb of a male boss who had some sexual interest in you, he could promise you, well, you'd be put in a higher paid job where you'd get more money for every item of clothing or whatever if you just, you know, come Mm -hmm. home with me tonight or whatever. And she talks about this at one point, and it's really, doesn't use the word... uh, Uh, sexual harassment, which is how we would describe it today, but it was clear that was as much of an issue then uh, as it is today. Then you mentioned the case of Sarah Coton, which was a fascinating one. This was a woman of that era who, like Rose, was a Jewish immigrant from Russia. Uh, She had gone to work as a trainee nurse for a doctor in New York City who maintained a very small maternity hospital in the same building where he lived. And he provided Sarah Coton, his nurse in training, with a room uh, in his house in which to to live and to sleep. One night he piped chloroform under her door uh, and when she was unconscious, he raped her. Uh Some weeks later, she realized she was pregnant. She went, got a gun, and shot and killed the doctor and waited to be arrested so this case, of course, hit the headlines. Rose immediately went to the prison in New York where she was being held, interviewed her in yiddish uh, wrote the most complete story of the case that there is, and then announced to the news media that when Sarah Coton was released from prison, she rose, well, first of all, that Rose would pay all of her expenses for trial, for defense at her trial, and then when she was released from prison, she would give her and the baby she was pregnant with a place to live. Uh, And that is what happened. Uh, The trial took place, and actually Sarah Coton was let off. She was uh, found innocent of killing this doctor because another woman had come forward and said the doctor had tried to do the same thing to her. Um, So this was a case also with very strong feminist overtones that Rose got involved with during her lifetime.
0: And of course, at the time, talking about birth control was completely forbidden. And I, I do believe that was because, you know, It threatened male dominance and control. And, you know, there was a lot of that going on. I mean, uh, Emma Goldman, lots of people. She was part of that as well.
2: The Very, very definitely. Yeah. Uh, You know, all public discussion of birth control was uh, forbidden under the the, what was called the Comstock Act yes. it was regarded as something pornographic if you were you know describing birth control techniques in in public or heaven forbid you know uh, selling or providing patients with birth control devices, hmm. naturally you know wealthy women who could afford to go to a private doctor of their choice, could get all this kind of information in confidence. But talking about it in public, publishing pamphlets and books and so forth on the subject was forbidden. Emma Goldman, who did this, went to jail. Margaret Sanger, who was a friend of Rose's, also went to jail. Uh, Rose spoke about uh, the subject publicly and passed out birth control pamphlets from the stage at Carnegie Hall. Uh, saying, I'm going to violate the law right here, right now. An incredible scene where I th- probably the only time that anybody on the stage of Carnegie Hall has ever deliberately violated a law. She was not, however, arrested, unlike her friends Emma Goldman and Margaret Sanger, I think because the government didn't want to make her into a martyr figure.
0: Mm. Sometimes they get smart, but, you know, and she was married to a very wealthy guy, and I'm sure that made a difference. And, you know, in today's America, and I, I, I don't know, other times perhaps we insist that the president has to be a celebrity of some sort. I don't think the president, Wilson, was a celebrity back then, but aside from actual governmental power, it seems celebrity was also very powerful then. In in what ways was Rose what we would consider a celebrity? Why was she such a star? I wonder if you could talk about the role of celebrity and power in America then and now, perhaps.
2: Well, I think celebrities are people that the rest of us want to project ourselves onto. (sighs) Uh, They fulfill some kind of dream. And the Cinderella myth is one of the most ancient of dreams, of course. The idea that if you're some impoverished uh, you know, woman you know, living in great poverty, Prince Charming will come along, recognize how virtuous and deserving you are, and rescue you and speed you off to his castle. And this was what people assumed the marriage of Rose and Graham Stokes was. Uh, and I think It was part of their fascination with it and their enthusiasm for it. Uh, You know, when they got married, there were editorials in daily newspapers congratulating Graham Stokes on being so bold as to do something like this. Uh, They were cheered when they appeared in public together. Uh, People compiled uh, scrapbooks of newspaper clippings about them, and and I found one of these at the New York Historical Society. So what is this fantasy? I think it's a fantasy that comes out of the uh, assumption that somehow the classes in this world, rich and poor, are fixed in place. Mm. Anybody who has the bad luck to be poor is sort of doomed to be there unless there's some sort of magical rescue. And that, I think, is the source of our unending fascination with commoners who marry into the British royal family. Uh, Uh And uh, it was the fascination that people had with Rose and Graham at that time. They didn't quite fit the script, however, because Graham, uh, to some degree, had left the castle of his family. Uh, He later returned to it, but he left it enough to join the, the Socialist Party, to mix in these extraordinary Greenwich Village circles, and Rose really had no desire to live in the castle. Uh, And in Mm. fact, she was, although they did often stay with his parents in one or another of their palatial homes, she was always uncomfortable with it, especially uncomfortable with being an employer of servants. Mm. So their lives didn't quite fit the script.
0: And I would imagine it was expected that he would change her. Of course, he was saving her, scooping down and, and lifting her up. I don't think she saw it that way. I'm getting the sense uh, that, right. that that she—I that,
2: think that's what that's what people fantasized, uh, and I think it took everybody involved and everybody watching them quite a long time to realize that she was actually the more intelligent, the more dynamic, the more spirited of this couple. I think when when they married, she was awed by the fact that, you know, she had had less than two years of formal schooling, as I mentioned. Uh, He had multiple graduate degrees. Uh, You know, he'd been undergraduate at Yale. He'd gotten his medical degree and another degree at Columbia. She was awed by that. She was awed by the fact that he knew various well-known artists and writers. And it took her about 10 years to realize that actually intellectually, she was sharper than he. Oh, yeah. She realized early on that she was a much better public speaker than he was. Uh, and But it took about 10 years before she no longer took her direction, sense of what was right and wrong politically uh, from him. And the First World War was really the thing that divided them. Uh, he, she ended up feeling it was a terrible mistake for the United States to enter the war and she actively began going around uh, speaking against it and was in fact prosecuted under the Espionage Act. Graham Stokes was so enthusiastic for the war that he uh, enlisted. He was too old to get sent overseas. Were,
0: Were there things in her life that may kind of reveal why left socialism would never connect in America? Did socialism have a clear meaning back then? And, and and I wonder, what about Rose's story speaks to us where we are now in the 2020s?
2: Well, I think the thing about that, Rose's story, and so many of the good people of that era that speaks to us today, whether we're talking about her or Eugene Debs or Emma Goldman or Margaret Sanger or any of these others, is that these were people who helped millions of Americans, including those who were not necessarily living in dire poverty, to become aware of the enormous injustices in this country. Uh, You know, Upton Sinclair, the novelist, uh, wrote his great novel, The Jungle, uh, which gave us our food and drug laws, because it was through books like that that people became aware of what happened in the the canneries, the meatpacking plants. Uh, He was a friend of of Rose and Graham's. He sent that novel chapter by chapter to Graham Stokes as he was writing it to get his feedback. Uh, These people were also aware of the enormous disparities of wealth in this country. Uh, And, of course, we're living in an era of even greater disparities today, because today the top 1% of Americans has a greater percentage of income, End of wealth than they did. Uh, it doesn't mean uh, uh, quite the same thing to be poor today that it did, you know, in, in 1900 or 1905, but it still means a kind of suffering which shouldn't have to happen in one of the wealthiest countries on Earth. The fact that we've got 28 million people in the United States now who don't have health insurance is outrageous. Yeah. These are the kinds of injustices that people were aware of then and I think need to uh, be aware of today.
0: Well, one final question, and I thank you so much. You know, To have done this research and then to make a, a narrative of it, a story, okay, I'm impressed. I, 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 yeah, it's good stuff. Now, she lost a lot of things. What, what did she win, do you think? And, and she died fairly young and poor again.
2: She did. You know, she and Graham got divorced very bitterly in uh, 1925. Uh, But happily for me, she kept a diary. They saved all their letters. They wrote dueling memoirs that were unpublished in their lifetimes. Graham's was never published. Hers was published only half a century after her death. Uh, And when they got divorced, Rose, as a matter of principle, would not take alimony. Mm. Mm. But she had a very hard time making a living because there was no market for radical agitators in the 1920s, Uh, America, uh, Coolidge, Harding, Hoover, Uh, and she had a hard time scraping by. And once again, as had been the case 25 years earlier, she sometimes had trouble finding enough to eat. Uh, She died fairly young of cancer uh, at the age of 53. But I think she leaves us a a legacy of somebody who was passionately committed to making this a more just society, and who knew from experience uh, what poverty was like, and who had the hope that poverty did not have to exist. Uh, That's the thing that uh, I'm most impressed by in her, as well as her ability to be able to speak about these issues to a wide variety of audiences it's fascinating to me to look at accounts of her speeches and to read those that we have transcriptions of uh, when she spoke to labor union members she could talk about her own experiences on the factory floor when she spoke to a religious audience she could talk about you know poverty and injustice in terms of stories in the bible when she spoke to you know, middle-class women's clubs. She had a way of bringing alive the world that she had come from so that it would, uh, you know, reach out to the the empathy she was hoping for from them. So this was a person who knew how to talk to many different audiences to do so effectively. And uh, she's someone that uh, I admire and that uh, I wish we had remembered
0: better. Well, I'm glad you have this uh, new book. Once again, thank you, Adam Hochschild, so much for being with us. Uh, so many uh, really uh, revelatory books that I have enjoyed. This one is Rebel Cinderella, From Rags to Riches to Radical, The Epic Journey of Rose Pastor Stokes. Thanks so much for being with us today.
2: Okay, thank you, Bert.
1: She's a rebel girl, a rebel girl. and her kind and the grafters in terror are trembling when her spite and defiance shall hurl for the only answer Oh